We'd Like a Word. First of all, thank you everyone for coming tonight. This is We'd Like a Word, which is presented by me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. Hello. And our special guest is Robert Thurgood, and I think we should give him a little bit of a applause for coming here. <laughs> Robert Thurgood. No, no, don't. Seriously, it was only 10 minutes up the A404. It was no effort at all. It's delightful to be here, but I'm a bit freaked out. We've got sofa, we've got microphone, wine. See, normally there isn't a mic in between the wine in my mouth. Well, you'll just so have to work keep, it keep drinking it. Keep drinking it. Yeah. Uh, we usually don't do this in front of an audience, so this is lovely. We've been going for a couple of years talking to all sorts of authors like... Oh, we've had, we've had Graham Norton. Anthony Horowitz. Uh, Denise Miner. Adrian McKinty. Lots of cool There's people. a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Uh, we thought about doing this live as a kind of Christmassy special as we're getting towards that time of year. And also because we were approaching our 50th anniversary, our 50th podcast. Um, unfortunately, because of COVID and a couple of people falling out, you're actually here to celebrate our 48th podcast instead. <laughs> which, which, um, which isn't quite so memorable. Uh, it's not a golden anniversary. I, I don't know what 48 is. Muesli? Whatever it is, this is the 48th show. And yeah, we thought how nice to do it somewhere local to where we all live and use the Arts Centre, which is a great resource as well, and do a live show and see how it goes. Mm. So thanks very much for coming along. And um, we hope it's going to be a bit of fun. It's, it's a podcast about writing, writers, all aspects of the, um, the writing trade, not just books. We've talked to poets, we've talked to lyricists, we've talked to book publicists, agents, all sorts of people. And we try and share as much knowledge as we can. And uh, the final thing to say is uh, the money that you've paid tonight is going towards the Arts Centre here, which is fabulous, and Wickham Food Hub, which we'll hear a bit about later. But anyway, here we have Robert Thorogood, fantastic to have you, creator of Death and Paradise and the Marlowe Murder Club, which is really good. Has anyone here seen Death and Paradise? Oh, I, okay, think, right, I right. think a couple of people have. Yeah. Okay. Has anyone seen Midsummer Murders? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, right. There's a story there. So that's why I asked the question. I suppose the first thing I want to ask you is, how did Death in Paradise come about? <laughs> because there's a Midsummer Murders link. There, well, it's... Um, oh, there's a really bitter and mean writer's version of this, which isn't what you're going to get tonight, because I've only had oh, one glass of wine. Aww. Um, but... <laughs> So for many years, I was very, very unsuccessful as only a white, middle-class, private school-educated guy can kind of pull off. Um, so I just kept plugging away, trying to be a, um, a TV writer. And I loved murder mysteries, so much so that I wanted to get a job on Midsummer Murders, and, which I adore. I think it's a brilliant show, um, exploding golf balls notwithstanding, um, which... You know, I suppose that many series in, you are going to eventually come up with that as a way of killing someone, along with another favourite of mine is um, the watch, the pocket watch, which when you open it up, releases the gas that kills you. Um, but I really wanted to get a job on Midsummer Murders. Um, so I went to the production company who make it, Bentley, who are a lovely production company, um, and said, look, I want to work on Midsummer Murders. And they said, well, look, you've never written for telly. Midsummer Murders is one of the biggest shows um, that ITV have got. Um, I don't think that's going to be possible. So I thought, well, I'll come up with another idea that I'll take to Bentley and I'll try and so impress them that uh, every time we meet, I'll just say, and is there a job on Midsummer Murders? Um, and the idea I took to them 
Um, we developed for a spell, and they are terrific. But I was just aware that there was this big prize out there. If I could just somehow trick them through the quality of my writing or through advocacy, really, over lunch, that sort of thing, if they could just hire me, then I'd get my big chance. And I knew that if I was going to get a chance, you know, if you're a writer, if you're starting out, you kind of have to take every opportunity that comes along, and you have to behave as if when your chance comes, it's the only chance you're ever going to get. So I prepared a, um, a locked room mystery, because I thought, if basically, what I really should have said at the beginning was, that one question alone is about a three-hour answer. But... Um, if you're going to do a murder mystery, if you're going to do golden age murder mysteries, which is what I love above all else, you know, if you're going to be Agatha, um, you've got to do a locked room mystery. So I sort of set myself the task of trying to come up with a locked room mystery in a modern day setting so that if it ever happens that Midsummer said, right, do you have an idea? I'd be ready to go. And um, they never did. <laughs> It's <laughs> the long and the short of it, or the short and the short of it. And so, because they never did, because genuinely it would have been insane for them to have done so, because I had no television credits at all, um, it meant that it, I was still hungry. Uh, so I came up with Death in Paradise, which is a longer story than just that sentence. Um, and the very first episode that I wrote for Death in Paradise was my Midsummer Murders idea, um, which was a delightful form of revenge. Uh, absolutely delightful. So when Death in Paradise got greenlit, I did feel confident that that first episode, I would have a murder mystery story. Because as you know, as anyone who's read murder mysteries or tried to write murder mysteries, they're quite tricky. I wonder, does anyone know what your original title for Death in Paradise was? Uh, well, well, the original pitch was untitled Copper in the Caribbean idea. Because um, <laughs> I didn't have a title. Um, this is good research. This is excellent work. I'm being teed up like an exploding golf ball. Um, uh, untitled Copper. Uh, so the pitch was uh, an uptight British copper played by David Mitchell uh, gets sent to the Caribbean against his will and solves light-hearted murders once a week. And so that was the pitch, and um, because I know David from university days, and he was at a stage in his career where uh, attaching him was really um, helpful. I mean, I was at a stage in my career where I could have attached Fred, our postie, and it would have been a really good idea. Um, so being able to pull in David, and if any writers or creatives are trying to get any ideas off the ground, if you aren't particularly famous yourself or, or you don't have the clout, trying to trick someone with a bit more clout than you to help you get the project off the ground is a, is a really good way to go. So um, I sort of had this idea, I had David, and I pitched it to Red Planet, who are a brand new company back then, set up by Tony Jordan, who is a sort of a hero of British television. He, he's life on Mars. He wrote all of the episodes of EastEnders that we all remember. Um, and he's Hustle, for example. Uh, and he also is, he sort of has that kind of chutzpah that meant that when I pitched it to him, because I'd been pitching this untitled copper in the Caribbean idea around London, <laughs> it sounds so grand, around some of the production companies who would let me in uh, for 18 months, something like that. Um, and I pitched it to him. There's a longer story that isn't necessarily interesting about entering a writing prize to get me in the room with him. 
and I said to him, uh, it's this untitled copper in the Caribbean idea, uh, and he said, oh, that sounds great. Now, every time I had pitched it, the response in the room was, well, that's great, you know, that's a nice idea, but this is 2009-ish, um, Britain doesn't make television abroad, we certainly don't make television this expensive because most of the budget is spent on flights, frankly, and hotels. Um, it's, you know, you have to get there before you can even start filming. So it's expensive. I was going to say we can tell. Yeah. <laughs> that would be unfair. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the best thing. The best thing about the show is, is that because we film it all in the Caribbean, we get the scenery for free. So, and also the rain and also the wind. Um, but, you know, Tony was the first person who, when I said, yeah, but everyone says it's too expensive, everyone says I've got no credits, he just said, that's fine. We're just asking the BBC if they would commission a treatment. You know, just, it's sort of like three or four pages. Um, and so what he did was he had the confidence, no one else in television land up to that point had, to just take it one step at a time. And he sort of didn't trick the BBC, he just made it easy and digestible for them. He said, it's, yes, Robert is new, but we're just gonna commission a treatment, it's a couple of grand, why don't you give them a chance? Because it's only a treatment, you commission treatments all the time. Funnily enough, in the last 10 years, they've stopped commissioning treatments. It's a massive problem in trying to develop television. It's just that the money you used to get, the small amounts of money that meant you didn't have to temp as a secretary that month, those small amounts of money have sort of evaporated, which is creating a world where the, there's a kind of an upper class of writers, and um, it's just it's, it's harder to get into even than it used to be. Um, so I went off and wrote this treatment, which, brilliantly, they did like. And then they said, well, do you have any ideas for episode one? And I went, ha, 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 yes, I do. Um, because um, panic rooms, that's a modern thing. And it really fitted in the Caribbean, even more so maybe than in midsummer. Um, so I was able to hit the ground running. And I do remember on the Friday I got the news. I was in with um, Tony and Simon, who was also one of the very important people who found the idea from a long list of ideas. Um, and on the Friday they said, well, look, you've been commissioned to write a a script, um, could you like come up with the characters in the show by Monday? So I went away and I got up my Wikipedia page of all of the West Indian cricketers there's ever been. And I got loads of first names and loads of surnames. And I sort of went, well, look, we're gonna need a commissioner. So we're gonna have Selwyn Patterson, all right, that's, he's the commissioner. Um, we've got Dwayne Bravo, so we're gonna have a Dwayne in there, not knowing that later we'd cast Danny who's famously played another character called Dwayne his whole life, meaning that every time Danny or I are asked about this, we have to say, no, it's just genuinely a coincidence. Dwayne Dibley? I know, I know, I know. <laughs> um, and, um, and I came up with the characters and Camille, although she wasn't called Camille originally, and Fidel. Um, and what was interesting was that I did it very quickly and under no particular pressure. So it was just... We, we kind of need... Um, so Richard Poole, who I'd always had as this sort of acme of that kind of, honestly, you will get a question in again, but the, the problem is, is I haven't been out of the house for two years. <laughs> so the idea of talking uncontested, because at home I've got no status at all. You know, I try and make some porridge and I don't even get first dibs at the microwave. So to come out and actually be allowed finally to have a voice, 
uh, is, is sort of novel and interesting. Um, but having come up with all of this, I've made myself laugh, and that's not very professional, is it? <laughs> um, no, I'm going to stop talking. You can ask a question. I feel that I've talked well, I was going to say, it's interesting that you were originally thinking of David, because obviously you were at Cambridge with David right, Mitchell yes. and Robert Webb and yeah. Olivia and all that gang. You know, you Funny enough, it was at a time where David and Rob were attached to literally everything. Yeah, I remember yeah. going to production, going to meetings, pitching my Death in Paradise idea, and I'd see post-it notes, sort of, you know, David Mitchell and Robert Webb climbed the um, the Andes, sort of thing, and I'd go, <laughs> I don't think they're ever going to go for that. It w- with other people, it would have been a double-edged sword, but I have no sharpness on my side of the yeah. sword, so he was giving me at least some edge. And um, the thing with Tony, of his many genius things, because basically, you know, if it, Tony is the, f- the godfather, the father, uh, the mother, the entire family of this show... The genius of him was he said he didn't want us to cast such a big star that it was about the star rather than the show. Yeah. In Tony's eyes, um, a good show, a good TV show, is one where the show, the format, the idea is the star. Um, and David was exactly the right level. And funnily enough, um, when eventually we got the green light, a short two years later, during which I'd run up so many debts on my credit card, because obviously I can't really work on anything else. I'm not really being paid to do Death in Paradise. You know, you've got this meeting at, um, I remember at World BBC uh, Worldwide, with like 14 people, they'd done a recce out to the Caribbean, and I'm sitting there going, I've got £7,000 on my bank, in my, on my credit card, I'm totally stuffed, if you don't give this bloody green light. Um, and then when the show eventually went, uh, they offered it to David, and David had just met Victoria, and <laughs> I remember him ringing me in John Lewis. I was in, I don't know why, I must have been... I've never bought anything from the Oxford Street John Lewis, but I sometimes go there to get warm. Um, and on the fifth floor, you can look at the um, technological equipment you can't afford and the big tellies. I remember he phoned me and he said, look, is it going to cause a problem if I turn this down? But because Tony had always pitched it to the BBC, not as a David Mitchell vehicle, although it was, it was pitched as death in paradise, um, it meant that when David said, I'm really sorry, the idea of spending six months away from Victoria is just disastrous to me. And I sort of said to him, by the um, iPods, um, no, that's great, that's fine. Well, it, you know, it, it absolutely <laughs> was fine. But the thing about telly, as we've learned, and I'm sure we'll get on to with our various casts, is that whenever one brilliant British actor turns you down, it turns out there's another thousand brilliant British actors that you can turn to. Speaking yeah. of that. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after this, I want to have questions from you guys. But my question is, uh, slightly going back to what you were saying about being at college, Olivia Colman. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So? Um, Well, (laughs) I don't know what to say other than the fact that at university, there were a couple of... Actually, funny enough, it it sounds sort of slightly mad. there There was us, which was normal people, who could perform sometimes, sometimes be good, sometimes not, sometimes be funny, sometimes write well. And then there were those that were sprinkled with stardust. And they were just cut from a different cloth. And Collie, as she was then... Um, I like that, Collie. Yeah, but she... Uh, uh, yeah, Sarah Coleman, who then became Olivia Coleman, it's, you know, uh, Olivia, um, was just brilliant and was obviously better than everyone else. And stupidly, um, so were David and Rob. I remember the very first time they ever did a show together, Mitchell and Webb, um, I was in the fly tower because I was doing the, you know, the, the lowering of the curtains. 
I remember we'd all done shows, college shows, uh, university shows, and no one turns up. That's basically all, because they don't know who you are. Why would they turn up? And weirdly, when Rob and David did their very first show, they'd sold out before they'd even opened. No one knew who they were. Um, I, that pause was because I still can't get over how they sold out before they'd even opened. And I remember standing in the fly tower, watching down on them. These free glass of wine. Yeah, free glass of wine. Works That's every time. Do it. These 20-year-olds. <laughs> and they were ex beyond this, the funniest thing I'd ever seen. So, so they also had stardust. Another person who absolutely had stardust was Sasha Baron Cohen, mm -hmm. who um, gave his topple um, at one point and just was so much better than everyone else. He auditioned for the Footlights tour and I turned him down rather brilliantly <laughs> on the grounds, pompously, because we were very pompous, I'm afraid, unfortunately, that he didn't really write his own material because our sort of approach to what material was was quite sort of Fry and Laurie-ish in that you write sketches, you learn sketches, you perform sketches. And the way Sasha, not Sasha worked, uh, um, was to just be a brilliant performer. And so he could do things that bypassed the brain and was just funny in your heart, as it were. And we weren't, we didn't have the wit, we were too uh, stupid to appreciate that. But when I left university and was really unsuffocated, at the beginning of a 15 year period of lack of success, um, some friends and I got together and said, look, why don't we put together a small tour um, and we we're going to do uh, Molière's The Miser, which I'd worked out, you could double up all of the parts, so that could be part of the fun. And I went, so I'll be in it, and then we'll get David and Rob and Collie to be in it. So it would be a cast of four, and one of them's going to win multiple Oscars, and the others are going to get BAFTAs galore, and then there'll be me. So I got to tour around various schools and art centres um, with Collie and David and Rob, which was lovely, but being on stage with Collie, it goes without saying, I'm just, it, it, she's luminous. You know, she, can, she cries... She smiles, she laughs, she does everything, everything. So, you know, watching her triumph, and she's also the nicest person in the world and is married to the other nicest person in the world, and but she'd always put her, her family career, first. She must have, have this death and paradise-sized gap. <laughs> no, she's <laughs> way too big for us. No, 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 no. Um, I think um, we'll maybe catch her in about 60 years' time. Mm -hmm. um, she'll maybe do a cameo. She'll be, she'll be older and magnificent and Judy Denchish, and she could be the new commissioner. Yeah, she's very Judy yeah, Dentchish, yeah. isn't she? But, yeah. but That'll be series 69. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, let's have questions from you guys. Now, um, I know some of you have questions you want to ask, but is there anyone who wants to volunteer to be first? We have a roving mic lady just we over do. here. <clears throat> and and tell us who you are and <laughs> where you're from. Um... Bucks. You're from Bucks, and what's your name? Helen. Helen, right. Go right. for it, Helen. Um, how difficult was it to pitch your idea in the U.S., where actually I live a bit? Um, well, the show's made in Britain with a French yeah. company, so by the time it arrived in the U.S., we'd sort of finished making it, and it was PBS... Running, it's been running for years. Yes, well, what sort of happened? Oh, so you didn't have to pitch it? No, absolutely not. Right. So it was made by the BBC in a co-commission with um, France Television. Because, you know, when earlier on when I said it was really ruinously expensive, um, 
we were the first ever co-commission between two channels. Nowadays, uh, there isn't a show that's made on television that isn't a partnership between the BBC and HBO or ITV and Amazon. You know, whenever we watch big shows on telly now, they've always got multiple financiers who then show it on their platforms, pretending that they're the ones who made it. But when we made Death and Paradise, it was it, they'd had to come up with a completely novel way of funding it because the way the BBC works is you get so many hundreds of thousands of pounds per hour. So if you're an hour-long show... I can't remember what it was. It was something like £750,000 they give us to make it, which sounds like a lot of money, and it's a huge amount of money, but uh, shows are quite expensive. But that wasn't enough, so we had to uh, sort of partner up with France Television. Then once we've made it, then BBC Worldwide, who have the right to... God, this is a little dry as an answer, isn't it? BBC Worldwide then try and sell it into various territories around the world. So that's how it ends up in America or in Australia or Sweden or wherever. See, the, you really learn stuff here. <laughs> OK, and we've, uh, there's a hand up at the back. This is to make Melanie upper step count, back and forth, back and forth. She's winding and wending her way through the audience, through the tables. She's quite serpentine, isn't she, the way she weaves like that? Hi, I'm Michelle. From Green. Um, I came to see your talk last year, Robert, or I think, well, a few years ago, it would be your last talk. And I remember something you said was, it was about the death of a, a Pakistani cricket captain. Could you expand on that? Yeah, sure. Thank you for coming last time. And what... Um, perseverance to return to the same <laughs> anecdotes. Um, I, I hope you know this now means you have to have different ones. Well, weirdly, of all of the stories, this is the one that um, I've obviously thought of for the longest because it's the origin of the, the whole show. And I slightly glossed over it earlier, but I can happily tell you again. So Bob Woolmer was the Pakistani cricket coach in 2007, I think. Yeah, uh, or maybe it was eight. Oh, God, you see, because I've got that sort of brain. I'm now fussing over whether it was seven or eight mm, around then. And, um, and he was out in the Caribbean for the Cricket World Cup. So I'm temping in um, uh, Debenham's head office, just behind Debenham's on Wigmore Street, which hilariously is where the National Centre of, what is it, Tricology is, where they do wigs. The wig centre is on Wigmore Street. Not enough is being said about this. <laughs> So I'm working in Debenhams. My wife, who's a, who um, funded me throughout, not funded, but supported me throughout all of these years of, of a lack of success. We've got two kids now. She's a journalist, and she always said to me, if you want stories, you've got to read the papers. Do you remember when the papers contained stories? Um, and, uh, and so every day I'd get the Telegraph, because, again, in those days they contained stories, um, and... Uh, it was very good, the Telegraph, in the olden days, because they did the, the broadsheet stuff and the tabloid stuff. Now, just the tabloid stuff. Um, oh, a Um uh, So I was getting the Telegraph good every day. Good obituaries as well. <laughs> yeah, thank you good very obituaries. much. Very good obituaries, not so good in foreign policy. And I'd cut out, like a journalist, like a cutting agency, the stories that were of interest. And on it was April the something, uh, during the Cricket World Cup, Bob Woolmer died in suspicious circumstances in his hotel room. The suspicion was that he had been murdered. It was front-page news at the time, you might remember it. And because he was a British passport holder, because he was a Zimbabwean, 
Um, the Met Police sent out a British detective inspector to head up the inquiry into his murder. And I just thought, that's really patronizing. Like, in what way can't the St. Lucians solve their own murder on their own territory? What can a British copper from London know about murders in St. Lucia, which is where he had died? And that was sort of half the idea, because I've always been interested in that kind of William Boyd, um, uh, our man in Havana, Graham Greene style thing, where you send a white, uptight British private school educated twit abroad and then they get schooled, frankly. Um, it's a, just an excellent trope, whether it's Evelyn War, Evelyn War. Are we supposed to say Evelyn? I think we kind of are now, but, you know, I'm still, I can still get cut with Bowie and Bowie. So. Yeah, I get confused That's with a... Bowie. Bowie would wear a bow, that's how I remember it. Oh, yeah. But he wouldn't carry a knife. My Henry Kelly anecdote. <laughs> I was at the Albert Hall with Henry Kelly. Oh, sorry, have I not told this before? Uh, my wife's now a presenter on Classic FM, so I was talking to Henry Kelly. I was talking to Henry Kelly, and I'm trying not to sing Going for Going for Gold. And um, you've been afraid. He absolutely pronounced it Evelyn War. So I felt, and he knew uh, Evelyn. Yeah, so. but if he says Evelyn, it's probably Evelyn. Oh, okay. <laughs> he was. I don't know. Yeah. The, he, drinks had been imbibed. But anyway. Um, this idea of sending a white Brit abroad had always attracted me, and this idea that we send a British copper, so I thought that's slightly odd. Then later in the same week, there was another article in the Telegraph about the Cricket World Cup saying that St. Lucia had just been voted the fourth most beautiful spot in the world by Condé Nast Traveller. However, it has the highest per capita murder rate in the world, which is true, or was then. And the idea just kind of landed. And, and it's, it's sort of because of midsummer, because I've been coming up with this idea for a, um, a locked room mystery in a panic room, because I've been trying to think about murder mystery ideas. The biggest problem with modern day murder mysteries is that um, we, we have got mobile phones and we've got GPS and we've got, um, as, I, as I say that, I saw somebody quickly look at their phone, um, which makes the old fashioned golden era murder mysteries that I like particularly really hard to pull off because why would you go and walk over to see Mrs. Miggs and find out that the cat has got hairs when in fact the forensics test in the, the murder scene would just bring that up immediately when DNA um, is going to immediately tell you who did the murder. Back in 2008, if you recall, that was when CSI was really popular, which had whiz-bang, computer-generated bullets flying through bodies. So I'd been sort of thinking for ages, like, how can you do the sort of stuff? I want Miss Marple in, um, uh, in, a, in a small village going around and talking to the petrol attendant and then being reminded that he's got a mannerism a bit like her uncle. Um, but it occurred to me, and all of this took place over a few days, it occurred to me that on a small Caribbean island, you could have all of the forensics and DNA and ballistics and all of that off island. Of course you would. A small island isn't going to have um, the necessary forensics to solve a case. So you, even in the modern world, you just send all of that off island, and then whilst you're waiting for the... You'll notice that Death and Paradise cases quite often take less than two days to solve. <laughs> whilst all of that stuff is being processed, because it's, you know, it takes time to do all of the clever science to it, whilst the science is happening on Guadeloupe, that gives you the space to go walking around the island and do a Golden Age murder mystery. So it was extraordinary serendipity my um you know i have to thank my wife for, for making me look at the newspapers as in where are the stories the, the, all of human life is there 
But by putting together the Bob Wilmer death and, and luckily, or perhaps, I don't know what the right word is that's polite, ten years later, in the, they finally ruled that it had just been a terrible accident. He died in a locked room. I mean, this is the thing why it set my mind racing. Um, he died in a bathroom um, and, and, and broke um, a, a, a bone in his neck that you would break if you were strangled. It's the hyoid bone, isn't it? That's well, you the see, you're than me. Ex-cop, what can oh, I say? Oh, okay, well, there yeah. you are. But it's also the bone you break if you slip and then just by yeah, extraordinary yeah. coincidence bang it on the side of a, of a sink. Um, so it was eventually ruled a terrible, sad death, but thank God it wasn't murder. But at the time, you've got the murder of Bob Wilmer, you've got the fact that Condé Nast said it was a great place to visit, but quite murdery, and then my realisation that finally I could do a Midsummer Murder-style show, and then it was just a case of trying to convince someone, someone, anyone, to pay me to do it, which took a mere short, as I say, two years of pain and I didn't have grey hair when I started. We're going to take a short break just as a comfort break so that people can um, do go what they have to do go and to go bar. to the bar etc etc. But before we do uh, we mentioned at the start that so the money that you've paid here is going towards the art centre and Wickham Food Hub and I just wanted you to hear a little bit about Wickham Food Hub and there's someone who can tell us about it somewhere yeah, I've, okay. got, I've got a mic, yeah. So that silhouette, dark figure at the back. That's me. It's Mark, Mark Page. I, mean, I, I dressed in black particularly Mark so Page I could blend in the back. Um, great show so far. Fantastic. Really, really enjoyed it. It's been fascinating. Absolutely brilliant. And um, Ruth and the Art Centre and a magic venue. Um, Wiccan Food Hub. What is it? What's it about? Um, Wickham Food Hub was set up nearly two years ago by two ex-mayors of Wickham and another local councillor. And it was set up when we had the first COVID uh, lockdown. People were struggling to get out. They'd lost their jobs, didn't have any money. And so Wickham Food Hub was just set up as a table outside the parish church in Wickham, giving away free bread. We then moved to the Guildhall, um, where we the table expanded a bit more. We had five or six people working for us. Not working for us, we're all volunteers. And we started looking at the, the whole issue of um, why people need us. Why do they need help? I don't like to use the word poverty, but there are, we call it the working poor. There are people out there earning money but can't get grants. They can't get universal credit. They're just below the level. Lots of single mums have some money. They can just about afford the rent. They can't then. They start choosing. What do I want to do? Do I want to heat the house or do I want to eat? And there was a... A study earlier this year, actually, by Sheffield University. Believe it or not, High Wycombe is the worst town in the UK for food poverty. Believe it or not. We think we're a very affluent town, but we're not. We are, you can see all the reports. So, two years ago, I'm going to jump forward a little bit. We're now in the children's centre, in the old workshop. All our money comes from people like yourselves who donate, events are done. We do apply for grants to try and help us. But what we have is a team of nearly 100 volunteers now that work for us. Every single night, we go to every single supermarket. And what we do, we go and pick up their residual food. This is food that they would have thrown in the skip for whatever reason, a broken packet, a damaged label. Um, they may have overstocked. They bought too much food. And they were thrown in the skip. And yet, on the other side, there's all these people in Wickham that can't afford to eat. And so our founders thought, we've got to pull this together. There must be something we can do there. 
And at the present, say nearly two years on, we now save around 50 tonne of food from going to waste every month. It's, um, it's in some ways it's sad that we're there but we're now changing um, and we want to drop the word poverty it's not poverty now it's life covid has changed the world and people are struggling and so what i did when i went in there six months ago um i tried to change the philosophy of the company or the business a bit to say when i first went there people were saying mark we're not a shop well actually you are you are a shop. Just a three pound in that person's pocket coming in the door could be 50 pound in somebody else's pocket. It's got the same value. 50 pound to somebody for a, a bottle of wine is nothing. Whereas three pound to somebody in the shop is all the money they've got. That could be their 50 pound in their pocket. So I brought a model in now to try and give people a bit of the dignity. They don't want, actually want free food. Nobody wants a free giveaway, really. They want to pay their way. So I, come, I devise this idea that people could come in. It's all supermarket food, and it's every supermarket you can think of. Waitrose, M&S, Morrison's, Lidl, every single supermarket donates to us every single day now. Uh, Greg's, Nando's, you name it, they all donate. And what I've come up with this model that people can come into us and buy like a Tesco shopping basket of food for £3. They choose it themselves. So unlike a food bank, if anyone has ever had any involvement in a food bank, do amazing jobs, but they give a bag of food to a family who've got no money. No choice, you get a bag of food. With us, we're a supermarket, in effect, that the people come in, spend £3 and can choose the food as if they were going in Tesco's. So we're giving them some dignity. So really, that's all I want to say. Thanks to the guys up there. Steve's worked with me and Paul and um, Robert. Thank you so much. That's what we're about. I just want to let people know who we are. We're not a food bank to just feed people on the street, uh, a down and out, whatever you want to call them. Although we do help them, we do give free food away, and we also help every other charity in the area. So we do the Salvation Army, Red Cross, all the churches. So we do, um, I think it's somewhere around about 400 crates of food every week we give away. And the last one we've just now done, we've now got a farm that will actually take all our bread waste that we can't sell, can't give away. The farm now takes that food from the animals. So, <laughs> so now we're actually making sure that nothing goes to waste, even the bread that we can't give away now goes to animal feed. So that's what we're about. And uh, hopefully, you know, thanks to the guys up there, the money you're raising tonight, some of the money will come to us. So thank you. Cheers, guys. Right, so it's very important now that you stretch your legs as you walk to the bar. We have you know, <laughs> just a few minutes of a break if you want to go to the Lou Grand. And then we have more revelations about <laughs> Death in Paradise but and about this book. Thanks but, very much. Um, we'll see you in about 10 minutes. Bye.